Hello, this is Toby, and before we get to today's episode, I have a couple of quick things to mention. The first is another one of my customary occasional apologies for sound quality. One of our two guests today, you will hear, had some troubles with her audio, and in the end, we ended up using the backup recording we made of the conversation, which is a bit more muffled. Um, I've done my best to clean it up, but you'll hear it's not all that. Uh, Sorry about that. I hope it does not spoil your enjoyment of what she has to say because she is interesting. Uh, And secondly, for those who are counting, this is the 58th episode of the Science for Policy podcast, which I am quite proud of. But perhaps more interesting is the fact that we're rapidly approaching our 100th guest, because quite a few episodes have more than one guest, so that's how the maths works. And I was having a little think about who our 100th guest should be, and talking to some colleagues, we came up with the idea that the 100th guest could be you. I mean, you, our loyal listeners. Um, So our plan is that anyone who listens to this show, which includes you, can send in your thoughts and ideas and discussion points and questions. And then on my side, I'll assemble a little panel of science for policy experts, probably previous guests, to talk about your contributions in a fairly laid back and lighthearted way. So if you have a burning question about science for policy or a train of thought that was maybe prompted or derailed by something you heard in one of our episodes or an experience you want to share or a joke or an angry disagreement, I would love to hear from you. Um, I believe in the podcasting world, it's called a mailbag episode. Although If anyone submits their question as an actual letter in an actual mailbag, I think I'll probably be a bit confused by it. Much better, I suppose, to send me an email at podcast at sapea.info or write to Sapea on Twitter at Sapea News or on LinkedIn or indeed leave a question in the YouTube comment if you're watching this on YouTube. Whatever you like, really, you'll figure out a way to reach me and I will figure out a way to use your submission if it fits in our show. And of course, if we use your comment, we'll acknowledge you and your organization and uh, let's say send you a check for 20% of the sale price of the episode or something like that. Anyway, I'm looking forward to being deluged by interesting questions. There's no particular deadline except that it'll be the next few weeks when we approach our 100th guest. So uh, get your thinking caps on. Thank you very much and on with the show. Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name's Toby, and today I'm joined by Dr. Jayshree Subbaraniam and Maria Mitic. Maria Mitic is a policy analyst at the European Commission, where she helps to administer the Marie Skłodowska Curie program with a special responsibility for the policy impact of research funded through that program. And Dr. Subbaraniam is a biologist based at Aarhus University in Denmark where she works on deciphering the chemical language of plants. And by the way, she also chairs the science policy group of the Marie Curie Alumni Association. So, Maria and Jayshree, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Do plants really speak to each other? Um, I wish I had an answer for you right away, but that's exactly what I'm trying to find out. But to answer very briefly, yes, they do speak to each other and in ways that are so amazing that they constantly keep me in awe. Okay, but this this chemical language, how does it work? They like emit chemicals and other plants detect them and so they have like a conversation or what? 
Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, when you look at a plant, you just see like a green thing that's that's probably like just covering the space around you. But when you see plants in nature, they're they're not those static beings actually. They are constantly emitting chemicals above ground through their leaves, through their roots, everywhere. And then they're constantly talking to not just each other, but to their environment. And that's what makes it super complex, but also super exciting. It does sound pretty cool. As frequently happens, I wish we could talk for half an hour about your research. But unfortunately, we are pretty much stuck discussing the science policy interface instead. So Maria, to introduce the topic, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the Maria Skłodowska-Curie program and what it does. Yes, uh, with pleasure. Uh, so the Marie Skodowska Curie Actions, or MSCA, to make it maybe easier the next... Uh... Yeah, good idea. MSCA. That will shave five minutes off the episode in itself. <laughs> so MSCA are Youth Programme for Training, Mobility and Career Development of Researchers. Uh, they are a bottom-up excellence programme, which means that they support excellent research and researchers in all scientific domains. Um, and also that they support researchers at all stages of their career and from all over the world. Now, through the main actions, what we support uh, are, is the development of excellent doctoral programs and networks. We also have postdoctoral training uh, and we also, in general, support collaborative research, but we have an action that is specifically dedicated to staff exchanges. We also have a program co-fund that uh, supports existing national and regional doctoral and postdoctoral programs um, through top-up grants. And last but not least, very importantly, we have an action that is uh, MSEA and Citizens, uh, which aims to bring citizens closer to science. And for this, we have large public science outreach events. And I think the most popular and the most famous probably is the European uh, Researchers' Night, which takes place annually every last Friday in September. Generally, we focus a lot on international mobility, interdisciplinary research, and intersectoral cooperation, and our researchers have the opportunity to actually get trained in both research-related and transversal competences. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said, um, MSCA is a bottom-up program, and this is very important because it really is uh, open, as I said, to any topic area and field of research. We gives it a lot of thematic diversity in terms of research outputs and space for, for innovation through, through collaboration and international partnerships. This also gives us uh, in, in the MSEA uh, a task and a quest to actually map all the contributions that MSEA um, does uh, make uh, to, to different EU, EU priorities and especially, you know, to the priorities of the European research area. Gotcha. Thanks very much. And Jayshree, if I understand correctly, you were an MSCA grantee when you were doing your PhD. No, not my PhD, actually. So I got the the MSCA uh, right after my PhD. So it was actually quite interesting because um, that was the year the pandemic hit. And uh, a lot of people had a lot of time to sit through uh, and write proposals. And actually, if I'm not, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, yeah, it was the the most number of proposals ever received under any Horizon 2020 project. That year, we had about 11,000 proposals for the MSCA postdoctoral fellowship. But yeah, it was quite a surreal feeling. Sure. So many more applications, but presumably no more grants available. So just much more competitive. Yeah. yeah oh, my God. Yes. True. Exactly. Yes, we know We know that the success rate, well, varying, but on average, it's 15%. So and the Current, the current postdoctoral fellowships are specifically specifically competitive. We are fully aware of this. So congrats. 
All right, so we have the MSCA and then we have the Alumni Association of the MSCA, which is your area, Jayshree. What's that all about? Well, um, the Mary Sklodowska Q Reactions is a flagship initiative of the Commission. Like these fellowships are one of the most prestigious and the most competitive fellowships in the world. Um, so the Mary Curie Alumni Association, the main mission of our association is to actually bring together this MSCA community. So all the past and the current beneficiaries of this fellowship are brought together as part of this, uh, the Mary Curie Alumni Association. Our main aim is to just support the career development of all the current and former MSCA beneficiaries at all career stages. So you don't have to be currently a MSCA grantee. If you've been granted the any of the actions, uh, the funding under any of the actions that Maria mentioned, you are eligible to be a part of this association. The membership is absolutely free. And we aim to be a voice of researchers, you know, across regions, across all career stages, across disciplines and across the world. So we are basically an international non-for-profit organization. Like currently, we have more than 20,000 registered members under the association. And this is spread across chapters, uh, like uh, across regions and also different working groups. And obviously, due to having all of these members coming together and uh, working towards actions specific for researchers, we have a very strong voice to help and support and advocate for researchers and what they need. Uh, we have had a very, very prominent representation in in across major science policy forums, like at the regional, at the national, and even at the EU level. Okay, so so you're not just like a traditional alumni organization, like I might imagine. You also do advocacy, policy work. Um, science policy is actually one of our core pillars, but then we have other pillars, including networking, career development, science communication, innovation, etc. And uh, like you mentioned before, I chair the policy working group of MCA. So I started working for the association um, two months after I got the funding, in fact, because I knew about the association even before I got the funding. So this is how um, prominent their presence is in the EU policy landscape. Obviously, like as a scientist, I feel, uh, and I feel like this feeling is resonated with a lot of other scientists who work for the issues that our job as scientists, I think is is incomplete without um, like if we just focus on a very narrow perspective of what is my work about, what is my research about, and what am I getting out of it? And I really think that um, it's it's really important for all scientists to actually understand the complexities of the policies, the legislations that make the work um, that we do easier or harder or whatever the things we are facing in. And for us to all, you know, come together and and work towards something which is bigger than just our sake. And which is quite interesting because my PhD was basically to understand the phenomena of altruism and cooperation in plants. And you know what? Spoiler alert, they do. And I feel like maybe I'm trying to translate exactly everything that I learned from my plants to really, you know, translate that beyond what what the, the just the science and to actually make the academic space, the spaces where we are allowed to do this kind of thing more accessible, more sustainable. And that is the core mission behind everything we do over at the MCAA. Yeah, let's all be more like the plants. <laughs> so when we talk about interacting with policy, there are always these two different kinds of interaction that it might refer to. So it sounds like the main type of interaction you were talking about there is representing the perspective of your alumni, your community, the wider research community. So it's like advocacy, trying to make sure your voice is heard on the policies that affect you. That's one area. 
But then the other area you were touching on is more like true science for policy, where it's less about representing yourselves and more about trying to get the results of your work, the research results into policy making. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, sorry. I just wanted to say that if anything, the, the pandemic has taught us, it is it is the one thing that um, scientists are under this immense pressure, not just from the society, but also from these policymakers right now, because when the pandemic hit, the entire world was just looking at towards scientists to to you know come up with treatments or understand the virus or like uh, everything and it was more about the, than the policy advisors were also relying so heavily on scientists so i think we are right now at a very cultural moment where we have gained this um, this momentum to be able to have a, a voice a voice which is being heard a voice which is making a direct impact and although this has been uh, uh something that the mca has been striving towards for a long time i think like it has never been more fertile ground than what it is right now and maria on your side of things so the msca program itself i guess you also have ambitions for science to policy work absolutely i mean in msca indeed we work in you know with this uh, science policy nexus in different ways so i mean it is not something new it's in the commission uh, trying to to have evidence based policy making and trying to inform policy with scientific results it's, it's not something new, but especially on the horizon europe we are we're dedicated to making this even more structured uh, and you know and using the the mechanisms that we have for informing policies with scientific evidence. Um, what we have under under horizon europe is the the framework of uh, feedback to policy so it's not only related to the MSCA but to horizon europe uh, at large. There are two kind of strands, let's say, that we are working uh, in. One is trying to enhance communication across com uh, commission services. So, you know, different parts of, uh, of the commission, different DGs and executive agencies joint undertaking. So we, are, we have a, a group where we discuss it. We are trying to communicate with each other on what we are doing and how we can uh, enable, in a way, peer learning processes. Uh, and at the same time, we are, we are also trying to enhance consultation mechanisms that exist, you know, uh, and working with beneficiaries and with the projects that we fund in order to feed our policy work the, with the results from our projects. Concretely, for, for the MSCA, what we do know is that participation of, of policymakers in, in our program is quite low. So the majority of participation is obviously higher education institutions and research organizations. It's about 75%. Then we have private entities. So we support intersectoral cooperation, meaning industry business. Uh, but participation of public bodies in general is only 1.5%. And out of this, policy making bodies, so to speak, are around 1%. And this is something that we would like to increase and enhance because under the MSCA, we provide opportunities for our researchers at any stage to actually engage with other non-academic actors. And this includes policymakers. So, mm -hmm. so what kind of policy outreach... Uh activities are you talking about? So in the in the different programs that we, that we fund, uh, there are secondments where researchers can spend a certain amount of time actually in another host institution. And this includes, as I said, policymaking bodies. Also under postdoctoral fellowships, uh, we have introduced uh, non-academic placements. So basically after the end of the, the fellowship, the researcher has the opportunity to spend six months in another non-academic organization. And these are for us incentives where we are trying to encourage our researchers, but also raise awareness among policymaking uh, bodies that this is an opportunity where actually research results can feed into the, the policymaking. We know that um, there is 
certain lack of awareness, both among our fellows, but also among policymakers about these opportunities. And also that there is a perception that this requires a lot of resources or maybe there are administrative procedures that can hinder this cooperation and these connections. But we do have some good examples in MSCA and we are trying to inspire uh, more organizations, actually, and the, so policymakers and fellows to, to engage in this. Yeah, I see. So these programs are about putting researchers and policymakers together in the same room. Well, in, in May this year, we actually organized what we call a pilot uh, matchmaking event to bring together policymakers who are interested to host researchers and the researchers who are interested to apply for PF and to try to, to match, match them and uh, bring them together to discuss this. Jeffrey was one of our speakers in that event. So we, we organized it in May and initially our idea was to really focus on postdoctoral fellowships. So it was, as it was a pilot, we know we wanted to test it uh, and to see how it would work. Um, but as kind of we suspected, registrations and interest went much, much beyond only, you know, uh, potential postdoctoral fellows and much beyond also strictly policy-making bodies. Nevertheless, we made the event in the end open to all the interested parties because we wanted to have this conversation. We wanted to have a discussion and see actually what are the, the needs the research needs from the side of policymakers and what kind of research expertise, you know, the researchers uh, interested in MSCA can, can offer. Um, and something that where we learned, or let's say it was just a confirmation of what we, what we suspected, is that indeed both sides really need space and need more opportunities to communicate and to discuss and to share what is needed. And we know that across member states that already there are mechanisms being put in place that there is, uh, you know, scientific advisors as part of ministries and that there are more and more these links uh, created in order to feed policies with, with research results. And for us, it was a very positive signal that, you know, confirmed that events like this one can really provide this kind of space uh, of exchange. And we, in fact, saw some very concrete matchmaking taking place during the discussions we had because we had two rounds of small group discussions where policymakers presented what their needs are and the researchers presented what their research field is and what they're working on. And already at the event itself, uh, we saw some kind of concrete partnerships being discussed. Um, and if I may just add, um, I think it is very important when we talk about, you know, how researchers can access policymakers, because often, you know, the assumption is that, especially if we talk about early stage researchers, that simply there is no access or that the policymakers are, let's say, not willing to listen. What we have anecdotally mainly, you know, uh, learned is that it's also the question of communication and speaking the same language. And I think this is the feedback we especially get from our fellows, that it's actually just about being able to translate the results of, of their research in a language that is understandable. And here we're not talking only about policymakers. Obviously, we're talking also about wider public and audiences. So what we are trying to support our fellows with, in a way, is to provide them some opportunities where they can be trained to actually understand how to, to communicate, how to translate their research so that it's uh, better understandable to different audiences. Okay, so it's less a problem of interest and more a skills gap. It's like they, they probably lack skills um, at that stage of their career to be engaging with decision makers. Um, and that is... Uh, a problem not only from the side of the researchers because they are, you know, navigating a like a very insecure environment. Like they have insecure careers, short-term contracts, like extreme mobility. There are a lot of these 
factors which hampered them to actually be active in the policy space but i also feel like the the opportunities which you were mentioning like the 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 effort to be increasing those opportunities is now more in focus but it was not probably the case when i was starting my phd which was like about 5 5 four or 5 years ago whatever but having said that um i i do feel like accumulating scientific evidence is not job done our ability to successfully navigate the issues and you know steer society in a in a positive direction uh, is is something that is a part and parcel of being a scientist because it can only be fully realized if it's applied to policy and to practice and like i would go back to the pandemic uh, aspect of it because it this gave us more insight into how scientists should be more more so than ever be engaged in decision making processes and that can really help like communicating your research not only to your peers but to public in all is is actually the need of the hour but having said that and having maria actually explain a lot about the actions taken place from the msca side basically mca is trying to understand this policy space and to really have the voice at the highest possible level so that researchers and their needs are translated uh, at the end to the highest possible decision makers and that's actually and to actually see uh, to it that it's translated into a legislative action at the end if i may just complement this uh, because you mentioned you know science diplomacy and i think it's it is very also important again to highlight you know msca is is a bottom up program and i think you know the research funded through through such a program and also reflects the needs of our society so on the one hand yes the the needs of researchers but at the same time you know the research that comes bottom up reflects you know what is needed and also the inquiries that are considered pertinent in the research community and i think this is also what is very valuable when we talk about the msca and just to, to give an example and to go back for example or to the you know the covid-19 and to the pandemic uh as you mentioned jeshri this reconfirmed or showed again you know really the relevance of of scientific results and the voice of of, of researchers um and just to give an example we know that uh out of almost 3000 publications that are that were related to covid-19 uh and especially i think there were more than 1200 in just in 2022 the MCA uh, research was uh, on top accounted for almost 80% of them together with the European Research Council and the health program so i think it is just another example really showing the relevance that comes from the research that is done under MCA that the MCA researchers do you know in reflecting again the needs and the, even you know crisis uh in in our societies yeah i mean i could not agree agree more about this um i also feel as an organization mcaa is constantly learning so much more like because we always say that there is so much more that we need to be doing and we are constantly asking our members to come up with new ways and come up with ideas to like what more can we do because that's how we feel like you know we need to be doing so much more um not just to enhance our own personal benefit or personal careers by being a part of this mcaa i think we have become a very altruistic community to think about something that's bigger than us and i think our theme for the next year's conference so mca has an annual conference every year and we have a very i mean we try to make it the most prominent and the most pertinent theme of the year to be the the topic of the conference and this year around we actually the entire conference going to be centered around science diplomacy and sustainable development and i hope to see you there maria next year february 
Um, yes, it would be it would be lovely. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was very sneaky of you, Jayshree, to to slip that invitation in while the tape is running. So. Uh, to apply a bit of pressure to Maria to respond. The pressure is absolutely not on me. I don't need pressure to join. And science diplomacy is uh, a topic that's personally very close to my heart. So uh, this way or another, I'm sure that you know I will I will be involved. Um, but what I wanted to add to you know because again going back to the bottom upness of the of the program, I think uh, so. What we are what we are doing now also trying our, ourselves to map. And understand, you know, the contributions that our, our researchers and the research projects that are funded are making to the different areas, you know, that um, EU, EU policies uh, focus on, on prioritize, you know. And we organized a so-called cluster event, for example, on mission, ocean, and waters, where we identify projects in MSCA that contribute to the mission. And uh, uh, we gathered some of pro- the project coordinators. We also gathered EU representatives and fellows who were discussing about their work. Uh, this is just one of, uh, one example of how we are trying to make more visible the contributions that our projects uh, make to to different uh, thematic areas. Because as I said, as a bottom-up program, we don't have thematic priorities. So this is our task under the feedback to policy to identify the contribution on MSCA to different to different topics and, and areas. This is something that we are really working on very committedly. Um, under under feedback to policy and something that we are planning also to do in 2023 and for through different formats, as I said. Hmm. I'm interested. So, Maria, you mentioned a few minutes ago that countries have their own science advice systems, of course, and so does the EU. There are these like established roots and institutions that do that. And I hear what you're saying about there being very specific challenges for early career researchers on getting involved in those, which you've talked about actually on this podcast a few times, and which I, I want to come back to you on, Jayshree, because I'd like to hear your insights. But before we get to that, it seems like when you're thinking about the MSCA activities you're describing, there are a few ways you might try and address those challenges. And what I imagined was that you'd focus on training and upskilling your researchers, your fellows, to get the experience they need to go away and navigate this space and take part in their own national science advice systems, right, or whatever. But it sounds like what you're describing is not just that. You're also trying to create more routes for science to influence policy directly, separate from those existing institutions, like a direct MSC route, right, with this matchmaking and and placements and so on. Have I understood that right? Well, this is the hope. I would think I cannot give you, um, you know, specific data on this um, because, as I said, participation of policymaker, policymaking bodies in the, the program as, you know, host co host supervisors is uh, is relatively low. But what we do know, um, in fact, is that policymakers are one of the top employers of our researchers. So even though we are trying to increase the opportunities, you know, of this exchange during the, the fellowship. We also know that our researchers do end up in the in policymaking bodies after their fellowship. And this is also something that we are trying to tap into. That we are trying to learn more about through, for example, events such as the, the matchmaking event that we organize and also through, obviously, exchanges with our uh, fellows and alumni. But this is something that for us now is, let's say, the world to explore and to, to further support. So... There are different avenues through which we are actually trying to, to strengthen these links and hoping that this would not be only in the form of traineeship or training, uh, but also that this would evolve into something uh, much stronger and more sustained. 
Okay, so that sounds great. But then the question that springs to mind is whether MSCA is the right place to do all this. I mean, so sure, you have excellent people and you fund them. And so I guess you kind of want them to be well-placed to deliver value uh, for you, I guess. But is there a particular reason why why creating this MSCA science to policy program is more useful than trying to help your people take part in the more general existing programs, for instance? Well, this is not about whether this should be MSCA fellows or not. I think this is also about what kind of structures and support systems exist. And under MSCA, these structures exist already. And I think that there is very often the criticism towards the, the European Commission or the institutions that we are trying to reinvent the wheel and this, very often initiatives are duplicated and there are overlaps and we are doing things in parallel. And I think this initiative in discussions with colleagues in other commission services led us to the conclusion that we should not create something new or you know create something from scratch if structures already exist. So obviously, it is not about MSCA alone, and we would, of course, like to see the wider research community being engaged in this way. But under the MSCA, the structures exist, and I think we should really explore them and, um, and create these links through, as I said, through secondments and placements and the, all the other mechanisms that exist. Yeah, that makes sense. So then let's talk a bit about these specific challenges that early career researchers face. Uh, when they get involved in policy work. Jayshree, you you reeled off a little list of these challenges a few minutes ago. Um, And I know this is an area you've been involved with in India as well as in Europe. So do you want to say more about maybe your experiences there? Yeah, most definitely. And um, there is a momentum right now towards integrating researchers to policymakers. And I feel like first and foremost, firstly, as a scientist, I feel every one of us has like an obligation and more of like a self-interest to be engaged in science policy because we get to then shape the future and what the future landscape of research would look like. But having said that, like any skill that we learn through our training of being a scientist, engaging in science policy to deal with the policymakers is more like, a, like an art, like it comes through practice. And that's why I think like it's very integral that a scientist uh, understands the complexities of the pers- policy space also. but uh, having a time, like, you know, doing it early on in your career will give you that hand handle on it maybe better because like any other skill, like you you get to practice it. You have to put yourself out there. Um, early career scientists are not always skilled or we don't probably have the confidence to directly go and talk to a decision maker or to a policy space, even to an institute at, at an institutional level. I mean, like early career scientists are so focused on just getting their stuff out. That if there is something that is discomforting to their scientific career or like their their ability to do the work that they are supposed to do, they would not even go to the institutional head and talk about those things. And that is that is why I talk in every chance I get. I speak to early career scientists to tell them that look, it's not only important for you to do your research. It's also important that you create or understand the environment which will help you to get the best of what you can. And I feel like... Um, more and more so, especially like I will come back to the fact that the pandemic was a huge eye opener for a lot of us. It gave us the much needed break to just sit down and really prioritize of what what it would mean, at least for me. And I know that that resonated with a lot of other scientists as well. As well. And now is the time for like this moment that we have right now where we have the spotlight on scientists and science and actually having the voice to 
make the, make an impact directly at the highest possible level because the policymakers are listening to us. They they need to know uh, that 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 was that was what Maria was saying too, right? Like, I feel like the time to act is is now, and I think it's very very crucial that we all do it. Yeah, makes sense. Maria, anything to add? Um, first, I, I just want to to kind of encourage and acknowledge, I think, the relevance of really this, this peer support. As you were saying, Joshi, you're trying yourself to to encourage early stage researchers, and I think this is very important. We all know how important it is to actually hear testimonial for somebody who has gone through the experiences that you're looking at and you know you can identify with. And I think this is extremely important when we talk about the work of, of our alumni association. Another point, early stage researchers and how they relate to the institutional context they're in. I think we had, again, I know it's easier said than done. And as as an early stage researcher, sometimes you don't dare do it. But I think it's a very important point to bear in mind. As you said, that it's it's trial and error and it's a question of practice and the question of getting out of the comfort zone and understanding the context uh, that you are that you're in. And one last point that I would like to make, I'm not an expert on research assessment, so I will not go into details, but I think it is also very important what is valued. And we know that currently there are a lot of you know, discussions and developments about, uh, about the reform of research assessment. And so I think it's also very important that we move away from the you know, publish or perish culture and that there are many other elements that are valued in the work of a researcher. And perhaps this is also something that opens the, the doors, opportunities, or even curiosity for some researchers to engage broadly, you know, beyond academia and so actually see that their work outside of academia also is valued and the contribution. So whether we are talking about, you know, societal impact or or, or any other research contribution. So I think this is also a very important development. It is not an easy one, uh, but it is a very important pathway that uh, we are all undertaking. Yeah. Most, most definitely, and I was. Uh, we were given the look of um, the draft agreement on the reformer, uh, reforming researcher assessment, and one of the things that really resonated with me was the fact that, like, going beyond this, what I was saying before, like the selfish output of what it means to be a scientist, H index, the number of grants, number of papers, and really making a more comprehensive understanding of what it means to, like, it is a privilege to be in science, like to be able to understand the natural world about around us. It's a huge privilege, but. To be able to go beyond contributing to your own personal gain, but to contribute to, like, say, mentoring is one part of it. Open science, they're embracing open science to a big extent. Like, mental health is another thing. So, all of these things are, it's 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 really very, very nice to see that the, the commission is taking such a strong stance on, on reforming the entire system. Because this is, I think, the system is at a breaking point. I think I read a paper recently where they were talking about that there is a paucity of postdoc right now like we don't have the the trained scientists trained people who are trained to follow this very very highly skilled jobs are leaving the market because of the barriers that exist for them to be able to apply their work and this is a huge undertaking by the commission what what is happening right now but i think this is the change that the academic system needed i think the system is at a breaking point and this would be really good for us and let us talk in a few years toby again (laughs) (laughs) yes exactly i agree and i think this is this is a good place to draw a line into our conversation uh ending on that more general comment about the state of academia and indeed optimism about how it might be changing so i will come back in a few years as suggested to see if your predictions have come true in the meantime I need to say, of course, thank you so much, uh, Maria Mitic and Dr. Jayshree Subbaraniam for 
filling us in on what's going on policy-wise in the Marie Skłodowska Curie Actions and the Alumni Association. And I hope they both continue to flourish. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to share. Thank you. Thank you so much, Louis. The Science for Policy podcast is created by Sapea. It's produced by me, Toby Wardman, with additional research and support from Agnieszka Pietruchuk. Sapea is a consortium of Europe's academy networks representing more than 100 academies, young academies and learning societies from more than 40 countries across Europe. We're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism, and as such, we're funded by the European Union. Having said that, the opinions you hear on this podcast are those of the guests, and sometimes mine, but certainly not the views of the European Commission. This music is composed by Carlo Alfredo Piatti and performed by Elisaveta Suschenko. And this last bit is particularly good. <laughs>